0: volume 3 chapter 3 of the vicar of wrexhill this librivox recording is in the public domain the vicar of wrexhill by francis milton trollope volume 3 chapter 3 charles's interview with his stepfather his sudden departure from wrexhill there were moreover other ladies to be encountered most of whom as the vicar well knew would not hear of his brilliant nuptials with pleasure but this was a matter of small moment the benevolent attentions he had bestowed upon them were chiefly for the purpose of ensuring popularity, and acquiring influence, and those were now too much at his command for him to experience the slightest anxiety from the fear of losing them. The remembrance of the three Mrs. Richards was indeed rather heavy upon him, especially from the circumstance of Miss Mary's having accidentally seen him kiss Miss Louisa, which he happened to do, in the little shrubbery behind their cottage, upon occasion of a serious discourse which they had been holding together upon the nature and influence of especial grace, little mary who was purity and simplicity personified firmly believed in her very innocent heart that this caress could only be given by such a gentleman as mr cartwright as the ratification of a treaty of marriage and had accordingly not only alluded to louise's happy prospects herself but had fully persuaded her sister charlotte likewise to believe that this blessed union would be the result of the vicar's soft attentions to them all so that upon a smart discussion with their mother upon the sin of works when matters had gone so far as to induce the young lady to declare that she considered the door of her mother's house as nothing less than a type of the gates of hell she had in relating the scene of this praiseworthy combat to their apostle ventured these remarkable words there is sorrow and sin in dwelling under the roof of the scorner but when dear louisa has quite consented to all your wishes mr cartwright her bowels will yearn towards her sisters and you will both of you draw us out of the way of temptation under the shelter and the shadow of your wing the only reply which the vicar made to this speech was the utterance of a fervent blessing he now remembered with considerable satisfaction the cautious tendency of this reply and upon the whole thought that there was no occasion to fatigue his spirits by making these young ladies a private visit to announce his change of condition as in the case of mrs simpson he therefore turned from the widow's door after the pause of a moment on her threshold during which these thoughts were rapidly but healthily digested leaving him that is to say neither loaded with remorse nor fevered by anxiety upon this occasion for some reason or other connected perhaps with that tranquillity of mind in his lady which it was so unquestionably his duty to guard the vicar of wrexhill had not made use of his carriage and servants he walked therefore back to the park and met charles mowbray coming through the lodge gates as he entered them the young man touched his hat and was walking on but the vicar stopped him where are you going my dear charles said he it is getting quite late you will not have time for a walk before dinner it is almost dark you know my habits are those of great punctuality i shall never interfere with those habits sir it is probable that i may not return to dinner indeed we shall be very sorry to lose you where are you going, then, my dear boy? Charles hesitated. His heart seemed to swell in his bosom at this questioning, and though in fact he had strolled out without any idea of absenting himself at dinner, something like a spirit of rebellion induced him to answer, to Sir Gilbert Harrington, sir. Good evening. Then let me bespeak your ear for half an hour in my library to morrow morning between the hours of eleven and twelve. Charles bowed but uttered not a word and proceeded towards Oakley, inwardly muttering, "His library." he entered the mansion of his old friends without an apology, but stated the cause of his visit as it really was. I could not bear to be examined by him as to where I was going, and when I was coming, and rather to prove my independence than for any other reason, I am come to you. Can you forgive this? Ay, truly we can, replied the old lady, and be sure to do the same next time, Charles. It makes me sick to think of this species of paternal admonishing. I am to be lectured for my impatience under it, as I suspect, for he bade me meet him in his library to-morrow morning his library scoundrel exclaimed sir gilbert through his closed teeth shall i obey the mandate sir gilbert said charles or shall i take no notice of it the question seems an easy one to answer charles replied the baronet and had i been to answer yesterday morning i should have said without hesitation set fire to the library and stifle him in it like a weasel as he is rather than come at his call but i have taken it into my head since that our test game will be to keep things soft and smooth for a while "'So wait upon him, Master Charles, in your father's library, and hear all he has got to say, and don't turn yourself out of the house, and don't spit upon him if you can help it. But I hope he won't sit on poor Mowbray's chair.' In consequence of this counsel, Charles did wait upon the vicar in his father's library at the appointed hour, and took what comfort he could from perceiving that he was not seated in that lamented father's chair, but had ensconced himself in a newly invented fauteuil of surprising softness, which he had caused to be brought from the drawing-room for his especial comfort.' You have not kept me waiting, and I commend you for it, my son. May he in whom I trust lead you in his own good time to be all that your pious mother can wish to see you. Sit down, Charles, pray sit down." Poor Charles, the whole scene was purgatory to him, but his courage did not forsake him, and instead of running out of the room, as he felt terribly tempted to do, he sat down opposite to his stepfather, determined to hear everything he had to say. "'I think, Charles, that the pious nature of your mother "'awakened as it has of late been, "'must by this time be so sufficiently known to you all "'as to prevent the possibility of your mistaking her motives "'for marrying the second father, "'in whose presence you are now placed. "'Her motives have been of the holiest kind, "'and never probably did any person perform "'a more acceptable service than she did. "'When, placing her hand within mine before his altar, "'she resigned that power over her children, "'which maternal weakness rendered almost nugatory, to one who is too strong in the Lord to permit any human feelings or motives, ever to make him swerve from that course, which he is taught to believe, the best. It would be a very shining pleasure to me, if your thankfulness for this most merciful dispensation were, at this very moment, to impel you to kneel down on one of those cushions, of such there are always sufficient, and to spare, in the dwellings of the chosen. I wish, I say, that even now I could see you fall down before me to give thanks for having sent to you and your sisters one of his own, as your guide and protector through the pitfalls of this life, and to usher you with favour into his presence in the life to come. I would willingly see you thus grateful for manifest mercies, but I shall not insist upon it at this moment, for I know, Charles, how different have been the paths in which your teachers have hitherto led you. The vicar here paused, but as there was no point in his harangue to which mowbray could have replied in the spirit which his friend had recommended to him he resolutely kept silence the time will come resumed the vicar the time shall come when your knees young man shall be less stubborn but it is time that i unfold to you the business upon which i wish to speak when i permitted your attendance in this apartment you have been led doubtless by the active machinations of the devil to turn your sinful thoughts towards that profession which beyond all others "'has made Satan its patron and its saint. "'In one word, you have thought of going into the army. "'And it is to inform you that I shall not permit this dreadful sin "'to be committed by one of my family, that you are now before me. "'Open not your mouth, young man, in defence of the God-abandoned set "'to whom you would wish to belong. "'My ears must not be profaned by any words of such abhorrent tendency. "'Instead of speaking yourself, hear me.' My will is that you return to college, and there to prepare yourself for ordination. I utter this command with a conscience void of offence, for though your awful deficiency in religion is well known to me, I have confidence in the Lord, and in the power he will give me to work a change, and, moreover, I know to what bishop I shall lead you for ordination, thereby securing to myself the consolation of knowing that no human learning will enable you to be received within the pale that we are strengthening around us and within which none shall be admitted if we can help it but the regenerate and adopted or such as we of the evangelical church may choose to pledge ourselves shall become so as to the manner and amount of your future income I shall take the arrangement of it entirely into my own hands, reserving to myself the power of varying your allowance from time to time, as shall seem good. You may have a few days' holidays here, if you wish it, in honour of your mother's marriage, after which I will give you ten pounds for your journey, and other contingent expenses, and permit you to employ such tradesmen at Oxford, as I shall point out, for such necessaries as it is proper I should furnish you with their bills must be forwarded to mr corbold who for the present i shall probably continue as my agent and when i have duly examined them they shall be paid your college expenses i shall also order to be transmitted to him and through him to me i must now dismiss you for i have letters to write be careful in passing these windows if you please not to approach them too closely this room is a favourite apartment of mine and i must not be interrupted or annoyed in it in any way remember this if you please good morning during the whole of this very trying interview mowbray had not uttered a single word he knew that if he opened his lips the indignation that burned at his heart would burst forth with a vehemence he should no longer be able to control he felt his heart throb and every pulse so fiercely keeping time to it that he was terrified at himself and fearful lest the tide of passion that worked thus fearfully within him should drive him to do or even to say what he might repent he hastened from the room leaving mr cartwright very comfortably persuaded that the eloquence which had been bestowed on him if it sometimes failed in converting those who had heard him to his doctrine was of a nature well calculated to enforce his authority a species of success which perhaps satisfied him better still the unfortunate charles took refuge in helen's dressing-room from the storm that raged in his bosom he longed to hear the gentle voice of his sister with as much eagerness as one panting in fever longs for a cool breeze or a refreshing stream and when he entered the room and found it unoccupied he felt as if that misfortune were greater than all which had fallen upon him before in a state of the most pitiable depression of spirits he seated himself most forlornly in a chaise longue that stood in a recess as far as possible from the windows and there resting his head on the side of it and covering his face with his hands he remained for a considerable time perfectly immovable and quite as miserable as his worst enemy could wish at length the door opened and a female entered Charles sprang forward to meet her, and very narrowly escaped, encircling Miss Torrington in his arms. She drew back, certainly, but hardly with so sudden a movement as that of Mowbray, who, colouring and stammering in extreme confusion, said, as he retreated to his former place, "'I beg your pardon, I came here to look for Helen.' "'And so did I, Mr. Mowbray. I cannot think where she has hid herself. But you do not look like yourself, Charles. Has Mr. Cartwright been speaking to you? I heard him tell his wife that he had desired you to meet him in the library.' "'In his library, Miss Torrington, pray call it as he does, his library, "'but what a fool am I to care thus for a word? "'It is his library, the man says right. "'But what, then, is poor Helen? "'What is Fanny? "'What am I?' His features expressed such terrible agony of mind "'that Rosalind almost felt afraid to leave him, "'and stood at some distance from him as he sat, "'with her looks riveted upon his face "'and her eyes overflowing with tears. "'Tell me, my dear Charles,' she said, "'what is it that has happened to you?' i will go and seek helen and bring her to you in a moment only tell me before i go if any new thing has happened to make us all more miserable than we were is it not common cause mr mowbray for heaven's sake tell me what has befallen you it is not common cause miss torrington he replied with bitterness my situation is i heartily hope without parallel and as none can share my wretchedness as none can relieve it it were better i believe that none should know it that is not the language of friendship mr mowbray "'Were poor Helen here, I trust you would not answer her inquiries so harshly.' "'Harshly? If so, I have been very wrong. Forgive me. Could you have heard the language this man held to me? Could you have seen him enthroned in my poor father's library, and heard him tell me that when I passed before the windows, I must take care not to approach too nearly? Oh, Rosalind, could you have heard all this? You would not wonder if I answered even madly to any question asked.' Rosalind stood silently before him when he had ceased to speak her hands tightly clasped and her eyes riveted on the ground i will ask you but one question more she said after a long pause and what is that miss torrington miss torrington she said muttering between her teeth alas how madly have i acted and how difficult it is to retrace a wrong step once taken she trembled violently so violently that she was obliged to support herself by leaning on the back of a chair which stood near her charles mowbray's head again rested on the sofa and his eyes were hid from her. She felt that he saw her not, and this perhaps it was, which gave her courage to proceed in the task she had determined to perform. But her breast heaved almost convulsively, and her mouth became so parched that it was with difficulty she could articulate these words. "'I learned from Sir Gilbert Harrington, Mr. Mowbray, that I have the power of making him my guardian.' "'Thank heaven!' exclaimed Charles, interrupting her. "'I thank heaven for it, Miss Torrington. You may then escape, and immediately, from this place of torment.' will indeed help me to bear it better he spoke the last words more composedly but again buried his face on the sofa but think you mr mowbray i would leave helen here i fear you would have no power to take her he replied not i but you oh mr mowbray charles charles will you not understand me will you spare me this agony no you will not but i have deserved it all and i will bear it charles mowbray it is i who would now lay my fortune at your feet oh do not answer me as i once answered you charles mowbray will you take me for your wife no by heaven he exclaimed falling on his knees before her poor rosalind dear generous devoted friend and for her sake then for my dear helen's sake you would submit to be my wife my wife an outcast penniless insulted beggar no rosalind by heaven no i would rather perish in the lowest state of human wretchedness than so abuse your noble nature but do me justice noble rosalind let there on one point at least be some equality between us believe that i love you and that with a strength of passion of which as i think your unawakened heart has yet no power to judge but should you rosalind ever learn what it is to love then do me justice and know how dear was honour to my soul when i adored but could refuse you he seized her dress and pressed it to his lips and then rising from his knees he darted out of the room without daring to trust his eyes to look at her had mowbray's state of mind been somewhat less miserable had the buoyant spirit given to him by nature been less completely crushed by the galling interview of the morning it is probable that his memory might have suggested to him some circumstance in the hours past heretofore with rosalind which might have raised some blessed hope upon his mind as to the motive and feelings that had led her to act as she had done but as it was no such light from heaven fell upon him in simplest sincerity he believed that she had rejected his suit because she did not love him and that she had now offered to become his wife solely for helen's sake and in the generous hope of saving her by giving to him the power of offering her a home with this conviction he determined to spare her the embarrassment and himself the torture of meeting again with all the feverish hurry of impatient suffering he instantly sought his mother informed her of mr cartwright's wish that he should return to oxford and of his own desire to comply with this immediately there was something in the suddenness of this unresisting obedience that seemed to startle her she applauded his resolution but seemed to wish that for some time at least he should delay the execution of it but on this point he was immovable and as mr cartwright appeared well pleased that so it should be he succeeded in so hastening the arrangements for his departure that within twenty-four hours he had left the house and that without having again seen rosalind the greater part of this interval indeed was passed at oakley where his reiterated assurances, that he should be much, very much happier at Oxford than at home, were accepted in excuse for the suddenness of his departure. Sir Gilbert, indeed, had so well read Rosalind's heart, and so confidently did he anticipate his speedy and even triumphant return, that both himself and his lady, who as usual was wholly in his confidence, saw him depart without regret, and uttered their farewells with a cheerfulness that grated sadly on the feelings of the poor exile. End of chapter 3